0: Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Friday, October 28th, 2022. It's been 3,166 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February twenty seventh, 2014, and 247 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The malcontent news Russia-Ukraine war update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian millbloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Rasputitsa was late to arrive in Ukraine, and we assess it as slowing down combat operations for both belligerents. Winter weather will arrive in parts of Ukraine within the next four weeks. Second, our assessment that Russian nuclear readiness drills were not a prelude to, nor an attempt to conceal, a nuclear first strike, or a cover for a treaty-violating nuclear weapons test, was accurate. Third, we maintain that Russia's accusation that Ukraine is preparing to use an improvised nuclear weapon is a disinformation campaign meant to sow fear and division and an attempt to discredit the Ukrainian government. Fourth, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. That the Russian military is combat destroyed certainly doesn't help. Fifth, We maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat and that an invasion of western Ukraine is possible in the next 40 to 70 days. Sixth, despite the GUR statement from Ukraine, we maintain our assessment that Russian forces are engaged in a withdrawal from Kherson, which will likely continue over the next four to eight weeks. However, our confidence is reduced. Seventh, Regrettably, we were correct in our assessment that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure would continue and target the electrical grid. We maintain that attacks will be ongoing and the intensity will increase. Eighth, we assess that the Russian mobilization of up to 300,000 troops has exposed the training, logistical, and supply problems in the Russian Federation caused by rampant and unchecked corruption throughout the military command structure. And finally, we assess that the use of tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely. Let's move on to our regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, did not release geographic information on Russian forces' artillery targets again, and there was very little information from the Russian Ministry of Defense and the mill-blogger community. And for the first time in months, there wasn't any reliable social intelligence either. Although weather conditions in Kherson have improved compared to eastern Ukraine, mud is reported to be a problem for both belligerents. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that Ukrainian forces attacked their positions near Mala Oleksandrivka. In our analysis this is a false report, with the last known position of Russian forces over 11 kilometers to the south. Other Russian mill bloggers did not echo the claim. A video showed at least one Russian tank was destroyed by artillery west of Snekhurivka. It is noteworthy that several videos in the last 72 hours show targeted attacks on Russian positions and military hardware from Novopetrivka to Kalinivsky. Okay, quick assessment here. Russian forces have attempted to hide equipment along this part of the front, along the Inulets River, and the canal that continues west of Snihurivka. These strikes give the appearance that Ukrainian forces are doing more than seeking targets of opportunity and are setting conditions. The Russian MOD also reported fighting near Ternovipodi with no change in the situation. This report is more likely to be accurate. Before the October 16th GSAFU information blackout, this region had been a no-man's land experiencing daily fighting. Both belligerents reported that MUD was hampering offensive and defensive operations. Russian forces continue to maintain a defensive posture along the front. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that Ukrainian aviation conducted 16 airstrikes, while ground forces executed 130 fire missions. The increase in activity by the Ukrainian Air Force follows two days of reported suppress-and-destroy enemy air defense activity in the Bereslav and Kherson Rayans. Ukrainian and Russian sources reported a hangar holding Russian equipment was destroyed by rockets fired by HIMARS near Bereslav, and two ammunition depots in the Bereslav rayon were destroyed. They also claimed air defense shot down a Russian Ka-52 alligator attack helicopter and an Su-25 ground-attack aircraft without supporting evidence. Russian sources claim that Russian troop positions in Radensk were attacked for the second time by rockets fired from HIMARS. There wasn't any information on casualties. Recently deployed Russian forces reportedly lack cold weather and rain gear, and the deteriorating weather conditions have increased looting for warm clothes and building materials. Russian occupiers looted the hospital in Biloserka, a Kherson suburb, and transported the medical equipment to the east bank. GSAFU reported that another 1,000 Mobics had been deployed into Kherson and continued to state that Russian forces are not withdrawing from the west bank of the Dnipro. Wargonzo mercenary Valentina reported from Kherson and described the situation as deceptively calm. The short video showed that streets were mostly empty and many shops were closed, but people were out and shopping in the central district. Overnight, Mykolaiv was struck by Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack. A three-story city administration building and an office tower were damaged, with one person receiving minor injuries. Some assessment here. The increasing use of S-300 anti-aircraft missiles in southern Ukraine would suggest that the Russian military has temporarily used up its available supply of Caliber, Kh-101, Kh-59, and Kh-32 cruise missiles. Poor weather may be restricting Russian aviation. We believe that Russian forces will move more munitions into the theater and continue cruise missile attacks. Russian forces attempted to shell Ochakiv from the Kinburn spit, with Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reporting that the shells fell short and landed in the shipping lanes. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, released an update on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Director General Rafael Grossi reported that a second 330-kilovolt power line had been connected to ZNPP. This is in addition to one 750-kilovolt line, providing three power sources to run the plant. Grossi reported that Rosatom employees were interfering with plant operations and preventing Ukrainian engineers from bringing Reactor 5 online. A second reactor would need to be brought up to a hot shutdown to bring Reactor 5 online, and officials in Moscow are refusing to agree to the operation. The IAEA reiterated that they do not recognize Russian claims that they now control and own ZNPP. IAEA officials reported that Russian engineers were working on upgrading the physical protection of the dry storage area for spent nuclear fuel and that on-site inspectors were informed of the plans on October 14. Grossi said through a press release that site inspectors still have full access to the plant and reviewed the plans for the ongoing technical work. This contrasts with earlier Ukrainian accusations that IAEA inspectors were barred from the area of ongoing work, where 174 spent nuclear fuel rods are stored. There was no update on the three kidnapped Energoatom employees, and Moscow has increased the number of Rosatom employees working at the plant. Negotiations to demilitarize ZNPP and create a protection zone around the facility are continuing. Nikopol, Markhanets, and Cervonohrio were shelled by heavy artillery and grad rockets fired by Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS, even though there have not been reports of shelling near ZNPP for almost two weeks. Private homes and high-rise apartment buildings were damaged in Nikopol, and in Cervonohrio an area of dachas was destroyed, leaving a thousand households without power. Quick sidebar here, a dacha is a very small summer home, typically a cottage with a common area and a kitchen with storage. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that a missile destroyed a factory in Pavlovod that makes solid rocket fuel and ammunition. Another Russian source reported an Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 Kamikaze drone damaged a factory that makes parts for the Ukrainian military. A security video showed a flash of light followed by an explosion and then the sounds of air defenses intercepting a second drone. The lack of secondary explosions or an immediate fire does not support the theory that a factory-making volatile solid rocket fuel was attacked. Sporadic artillery fire continued along the line of conflict from the donetsk zaporizhia administrative border to Juliapola to Orikhiv. Now to the Donbas region, starting with southwest Donetsk. After a significant increase in ground attacks and shelling, Russian sources reported that heavy rain and muddy conditions had slowed the Russian offensive, including the amount of artillery fire. Andrei Mikhev wrote, quote, When you arrive at the front line, it's a nightmare there puddles, mud, you don't want to get out of the vehicle. But at the same time, yesterday in Donetsk, it was unusually quiet. End quote. The People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Channel claimed their forces destroyed a Mista-B self-propelled howitzer, or SPG, two tanks, and 11, quote, armored and automotive vehicles, with zero evidence. Ukrainian forces conducted 161 fire missions on the occupied territories. The First Army Corps of the DNR continued attempts to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelsky without success. The DNR militia also continued attempts to advance beyond the eastern edge of Marinka and into Novo Mikhailivka. Maintaining their fine military tradition of the last eight years, they remain unsuccessful. Due to Ukrainian shelling, power was knocked out to over 53,000 households in Russian-occupied Donetsk, while residents collected rainwater in any container they could find. In northeast Donetsk, Private Military Company, or PMC Wagner Group, attempted to stretch Ukrainian defenses by attacking Yakovlivka, Solidar, and Bakhmutska. It was the first attempted advance on Yakovlivka since September 7th. PMC Wagner regained control, or potentially never lost control, of the asphalt plant southeast of Bakhmut. Russian social media was calling previous claims of control of the plant false, but many sources conflated the building product and concrete factory in eastern Bakhmut and the remains of the asphalt plant as though they were the same location. A quick editor's note here. We did not do that. We moved the area of uncertainty a little further northwest based on the short video released by PMC Wagner. It is worth noting, though, that the video did not show any PMC Wagner forces, and in the past the company has made so-called picture reports, which overstated gains. PMC Wagner attempted to bypass Ukrainian defenses in Kurdyumivka, attacking Zelenopilia to the north, but continued to be unable to advance from Mikolaev Kudruha. Russian forces continued to search for war gonzo founder Semyon Pegov's toes by trying to advance into the railroad station at Majorsk. They were entirely unsuccessful, both in the advance and in locating the toes. It remains unclear if the explosion of a fuel train in Russian-occupied Shakhtarsk Donetsk was caused by insurgents, an accident, or a HIMARS rocket attack. After the fires were extinguished, Russian state media committed an act of stunning operational security, or OPSEC, failure, along with the People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Group. RIA-approved TAS released the video equivalent of a Battle Damage Assessment, or BDA, showing what was damaged and what was left untouched. Russia 24 reporter Boris Maksudov made a similar report, showing a long line of undamaged tanker cars that had been moved away from the area that burned. DNR officials took it a step further, providing detailed photos of the damage to the rail yard, tracks, infrastructure, and buildings. So what happened next? Two hours after the news report and photos were shared, Shakhtarsk was attacked twice by rockets fired from HIMARS. The first strike hit the fuel storage tanks in the railroad yard, and the second strike targeted the undamaged railroad cars loaded with fuel. At the time of recording, the fuel tanks were still burning. Some assessment here. After eight months of total war, you would think the Kremlin would have figured out that providing detailed videos after an attack only helps Ukraine. But they haven't. They haven't figured it out. The deep desire to portray Russia as an innocent victim under attack from the entire world has thrown military sensibility out the window. Look, the second strike wasn't preventable. Eventually, Ukraine would have figured out that the fuel storage tanks weren't destroyed— What Kremlin-approved Russian state media provided was a detailed real-time analysis of the effectiveness of the first attack, if the explosion wasn't an accident. Before Russia could move the remaining fuel train cars or pump down the tanks, both were destroyed. The rail yard is likely unusable, with kilometers of tracks and switchgears that will need to be replaced. The DNR is already struggling with a shortage of qualified engineers and construction workers because they sent them to the front like cannon fodder, and Russian nationals who moved to the Donbass to fill those jobs are leaving because the Kremlin told them to. The Russian Ministry of Defense has a massive operational security problem, and they have neither the will nor the capacity to fix it. Moving on to Luhansk. The situation was largely unchanged— with Sergei Khayday, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reporting that MUD was slowing Ukrainian counteroffensive operations, and in some areas it has become so bad that advances are only possible on foot. Mercenaries with Wargonzo initially reported that Ukrainian troops had moved to a defensive posture after Russian troops launched offensives in the direction of Terny, but that was short-lived. Later in the day, the Russian BARS-13 unit reported through Wargonzo that Ukrainian forces had broken through their defenses and were on the outskirts of Zhitlivka. A little analysis here. Ukrainian forces are close to taking the high ground west of the P-66 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, which would enable their forces to hold fire control on the highway Svatov, Kremina, and Rubizhne. The Ukrainian tactic of avoiding strongholds and moving to bypass and encircle is already evident, and the liberation of Zhitlivka or Chervonopopivka would sever the main g to Kremina. Haidai acknowledged that fighting was tough and that the situation in the liberated settlement remained, quote, unstable. And Ukrainian sources reported that Torsk and Zarychne are under constant shelling. It's an interesting comment— because even the propagandists at Ritkova stated that Ukraine holds the initiative along the Kremina-Svatov front. Quick sidebar here. The pessimistic Haidai that is conservative in his reporting is back in full force, and our analyst team is here for it. We've missed you. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled a Russian attack on Andriivka, and we've switched the hamlet of Dzerilne back to contested control. Russian sources reported that Ukrainian forces made a small advance near Serhivka, and fighting east of Bilohorivka entered its 11th straight day, with no change in the situation. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Mount News. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Russian sources claim Ukrainian troops continue to hold the initiative, attempting to advance on Mykolaivka and Orleanska. They claim the Ukrainian troops were unsuccessful, but the reports raise the question is Peshotravniev liberated? See, the approach to Mykolaivka, given the poor ground conditions, would likely be roadbound and would have to come from the north based on Russian reports. We did not make any changes to the map, though, due to a lack of supporting evidence. Video from the Czechiev Rayon, east of Kharkiv, showed a fire burning with the sound of small-arms ammunition cooking off. In the Cherniev and Sumi region, Dmitro Živitsky, Sumi oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Khromadas of Bilopilia, Khotin, snobnov Velika Pisarivka and Nova Sloboda were hit by mortar shells and artillery, fired by Russian troops from across the border. Russian troops also engaged in a border skirmish with Ukrainian territorial guards in Velika Pisarivka, firing small arms and machine guns and using grenade launchers. There were no casualties reported. In the Kiev region, up to six Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 Kamikaze drones were launched at Kiev, with at least one damaging a transformer farm near the city. Electrical services within Ukraine's capital have become even more restricted after the attack, potentially requiring rolling blackouts to be divided across half the city. Moving on to the Black Sea, Crimea and Odessa region. In occupied Crimea, Ukrainian intelligence reported that Russia was renovating a Soviet-era underground submarine base— once known as Object 825. The base was used to hide submarine operations and protect them from airstrikes. Russian forces have repaired and upgraded the entrance tunnel and restarted the ventilation shafts. After the sinking of the missile cruiser Moskva in April and the June retreat from Snake Island, the Russian Black Sea Fleet has been forced to stand off the Ukrainian coastline. Quick assessment here. A series of successful drone strikes over the summer and the explosion on the Kerch Bridge have likely increased concerns that Russian submarines could be attacked while they are in port. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The United States Department of Defense is expected to announce another $275 million military aid package for Ukraine. Details weren't available at the time of recording, but it is expected to be additional ammunition—M-30 and M-31 rockets for HIMARS and M-270 GMLRS launchers and other munitions. Defense Minister of Ukraine Oleksiy Reznikov discussed a new military aid package from Spain with his Spanish counterpart Margarita Robles. Details on what will be provided were not shared. Speaking of not sharing, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Just 24 hours after the Kremlin admitted that sanctions were hurting the Russian economy and supply, training, and logistic issues were causing problems with mobilization, Russian President Vladimir Putin denied all of it in a four-hour speech at the plenary meeting of the Valdai Discussion Club in Moscow. Putin's speech and and question-and-answer session claimed that Russia was killing Ukrainian troops at a ratio of 10 to 1, a claim that after almost nine months of war is outright impossible. Ukraine wouldn't have an army anymore. Pivoting from the denazification, Putin doubled down on the special military operation as a holy war against Satanists meant to unite Christians and Muslims from around the world, with him stating he has, quote, many friends in Canada as well as the West. A quick sidebar here. When I was in high school in the United States... If someone said that they had a girlfriend or a boyfriend up in Canada, the assumption was that they did not in fact have a boyfriend or a girlfriend at all. But back to Putin's speech. He continued to frame Ukraine as a puppet state of a global cabal of billionaires, which is thinly coded language for the Jews. He said that Ukrainian forces were fighting for, quote, "...economic reasons to protect billionaires," and did not care about sovereignty or the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Putin reiterated that the planet was a unipolar world, ignoring the rise of China's influence and economic power, or the sway that OPEC nations hold over global energy prices. He blamed the war on the West, claiming it was caused by a rules-based order and the continual fanning of the flames in Ukraine. He then went on to say that the West does not respect the sovereignty of nations, while denying that Ukraine even exists as a sovereign nation. Putin may have set a world record for a cancel-culture rant while his troops loot Kherson, burn Ukrainian books, and rewrite history in Russia. After his speech, Pegov of War Gonzo, yep, that guy, wrote, Putin has effectively declared war on the world government, and globalism as such. In a way, he is now like Che Guevara or Fidel. End quote. Some assessment here? Despite cries from political subsets that surely the West must negotiate with Putin and Russia, over the course of four hours, he made it abundantly clear that the Kremlin is not interested in negotiating anything that doesn't end with the destruction of Ukraine as a sovereign nation. A month after the Kremlin threatened to use nuclear weapons to defend the illegally annexed territories of Ukraine, Putin stated the obvious— that Russia would not use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. With the threat of nuclear war off the table for the rest of the month, Konstantin Vorontsev, deputy director of the Russian Foreign Ministry's Department for Nonproliferation and Arms Control, said that Russia instead could target Western commercial satellites as legitimate military targets. That's not how this works. Vorontsev never mentioned any companies by name, but Russian state media had suggested earlier this week that Moscow should destroy Elon Musk's Starlink satellites. Quick sidebar, don't worry about the lack of another nuclear weapons use bluff. Russia will pull that threat out again when and if Ukraine has another successful counteroffensive. Besides, you're supposed to be worried about dirty bombs this week. While Putin was speaking, another war broke out between the Kremlin and Colonel General and aspiring dentist Don romzon Kadyrov, Kadyrov attacked Russian Colonel General Alexander Lapin of the Russian Central District for incompetence and blamed him for the military failures in Ukraine. In the Russian social media and millblogger space, a war erupted between those defending and condemning Lapin. The Kremlin is desperate to find scapegoats for the problems in Ukraine, and Lapin's political clout appears thin, causing Kadyrov to pounce. Another quick sidebar here, in case you've been wondering to yourself, is Ramzan Kadyrov a dental student? Why do they keep saying aspiring dentist? On June 27th, Kadyrov was awarded the Order of Merit for Dentistry during a ribbon-cutting ceremony at a new dental clinic in Chechnya. Kadyrov is absolutely not a dentist. Hey, quick question. Do you want to fight in Ukraine for an unofficial volunteer unit headed by our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal with a $150,000 bounty on his head, Kremlin pariah and recent mobik Igor Girkin Strelkov? Because I've got great news. Strelkov's recruitment drive for volunteers has now gone beyond tank crews and includes soldiers. He reported that his newly volunteered, quote, chief of staff had already been, quote, hunted down, so information about his unit will be kept to a minimum. Volunteer contracts are for six months, and it's BYOG. That's bring your own gear. If you thought Putin's speech on cancel culture and rules-based order was your idea of a perfect world, you could send a message on Telegram to seven nine three eight one eight zero seven three nine five. 180 7395 You need to be a physically strong man between 21 and 50 years old without addictions. Be sure to include your name, date of birth, military specialty and experience fighting, health information, and a contact phone number. Uncle Strelkov wants you. Please be aware of scams. A group of Mobics released a video complaining they were kept in unsanitary conditions with barracks full of sick men coughing up blood. Their commander won't come near his sick soldiers, who appear to have tuberculosis based on the description of their symptoms. In the Arkhangelsk Oblast of Russia, a contract service person in the Russian military driving a Kamaz truck accidentally ran over a column of 20 Mobyks. One conscript was killed and 11 were hospitalized with serious injuries. All is going to plan. Woo! We gratefully have nothing new to report in our War Crimes and Human Rights segment so we're going to move right along to geopolitical news. President Putin appears to be walking back his plans to attend the G20 summit in Indonesia next month. In his rambling four-hour speech and press question and answer session, he said, quote, We will think about how we will handle it. Russia will definitely be represented at a high level. Maybe I will go as well. For now, I will think about it. End quote. Indonesian President Joko Widodo had openly expressed hope over the summer that he could get leaders from Ukraine, Russia, and the United States to meet to discuss an end to hostilities. Recent comments from the Kremlin, however, appear to have made that goal unobtainable. In economic news, the ruble declined, with the exchange rate falling to 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices were steady, with WTI holding at $88 a barrel, and Brent unchanged at $96. United States' RBOB wholesale gasoline on-the-spot market jumped to $2.98 a gallon, or $0.79 a liter. EU-Dutch TTF natural gas futures climbed sharply to €112 per megawatt-hour for November 2022 contracts. December 2022 contracts are also on the rise, leaping to €144. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped to $8.30 per bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand?